The way that we uplift each other allows us to exist in a tumultuous world with joy in between each other. For fuck's sake, a theater podcast, a.k.a. 4FS Podcast, hosted by Aaron Salazar. Episode 11, The Audacity of Joy. All right, here we go. Well, hello, everyone. This is episode 11. It's all happening so quickly this September as we rage into the fall. My name is Aaron Salazar. I'm an award-winning theater director and producer in New York City. Also the guy behind AKS Productions. If you want to know more about that, visit 4FSPodcast.com. I'm also the producing artistic director of Poseidon Theater Company, which has some fun stuff coming up for the fall. I am so happy to be continuing this conversation with the one, the only, the legendary, not even legend in the making, as the copy would tell you in other pieces of, <laughs> of, 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 of stuff. Morgan Shabon, Shabon, Morgan, <laughs> right. Morgan Shabon Green is here. Actress, writer, fucking speaker of truth, manifester of knowledge, bastion of leading with love and determination. She's here. She's on the mic. She's She's been up for a while, so just get ready. She's caffeinated. Uh, some of her credits include being on the Broadway in Be More Chill by uh, the beloved Joe Iconis. <laughs> she did Moby Dick in Cambridge Mass at ART that uh, David Malloy wrote and Rachel Chofkin directed. She has been in all kinds of things on the off-Broadway and in regional theater, including working with Patricia Birch, uh, which I kind of want to talk to you about that because I'm, I'm obsessed with her. And uh, maybe off mic, though. And then uh, doing... Uh, no, no, I'm, you know, I'm just saying, like, I don't want to, like, you know, I, I love her, but I'm just curious, you know. Uh, that's not what this show is about, really. Good. And then um, working with Jeff Calhoun over at Between the Lines of Kansas City Rep, which looked really dope. She is a multiple degree holder, giving you knowledge for days, just casually being like, I think I'm going to get a master's because, you know, whatever. And she's also multi, she's she's also a multi-instrumentalist and a teacher who is deeply concerned. Every time I say deeply concerned, I want to say, I want to do the Gumby Cat line where she's like deeply concerned with the ways of the mice. Their behavior is not good and their manners not nice. Uh, That's because I'm gay. (laughs) And um, deeply concerned with community and making sure that we keep this love in a circle as an artist. Ladies and gentlemen, can we please give it up for Morgan Siobhan Green. Yeah. Hello. Yes, she is here. It's all happening. Let's talk about some shit. Yo, how are you on this, this beautiful uh, day of another 2020 day? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm feeling decent. I just had some Panera Greek yogurt, and so that was like that was great. All right, a little yeah. bit of a little bit of dairy, some protein. Yeah. How are some you? Gr- granola. I'm doing pretty well. I, I've actually got a lot of things now up in the air, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing to have happening. You know, but now it's just a matter. I mean, everyone, anyone listening to this is some kind of supporter of the arts um, or lover of Morgan. So then you are by default a supporter of the arts or you like me or according to 
one of our beloved listeners just kind of into an extended ASMR session with my voice, apparently. So, hello. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Long tangent to a point, all of us are trying to figure out how to pivot right now, right? And like figure out by throwing the spaghetti against the proverbial wall, like what's going to stick. So that's what I'm kind of curious about with these projects I'm working on is what will catch and allowing to develop and succeed or fail, frankly, which has been a big thing that we've been talking about. So I'm trying to kind of not be overwhelmed because even though I was keeping, I'm going to put in air quotes, busy for my own sanity, mm-hmm. now there's real deadlines. And to kind of go from zero to that is definitely something I'm like catching up to a little bit because I haven't been in that crunch that I was used to before this life, before this 2020 life. So that's pretty much what I've been up to. And thanks to Morgan reminding my ass, or I think I just texted her and she happened to remind me, which is a gift. The whole day the other day, I was walking around, like I was telling Morgan before this, like I forgot my keys. And I'm like, what am I forgetting? Something is happening. And then Morgan, as a godsend, reminded me that Versus with Patti LaBelle and Gladys Knight was happening. (laughs) and if you haven't I don't know if they have a replay of it I don't know I don't think they do it I didn't realize how much was missing from my life like I didn't realize how much I needed that burst of love to happen and it actually made me you know I gotta say it made me super super emotional because one the way that they spoke with so much hope and love even about the election and about change, and about friendship, and really about hope, it uh, sealed the envelope for me about how important it is as artists to be these like vessels of communication and messages. And they really represented that. I mean, we all know and love them. They could do nothing, and we would be like, this is, this is great. I don't know. I just felt hopeful. Yeah. So one of my favorite stories, New York City stories, is this one time I was walking like somewhere near like J Street or something. And there was this old black lady just like hobbling on her cane. And she was trying to get somewhere. And I ended up looking up on my phone, you know, mm-hmm. a shortcut for her to get there. Um, And she said something to the extent of being like, Well, it might take me a while, but I know I'm going to make it. And I just, (laughs) it was something like that. And I think the thing that's inspiring about watching and encountering older Black people, specifically like in my community, is that they are testaments of resilience Mm -hmm. and just proof that survival and thriving is possible. Yes. And sometimes it's in complete opposition with everything that we know, you know, to, to that we deem necessary. Like you look at Gladys and Gladys is like dang near 80 years old. Like, first of all, how? And residency style in Vegas, like performing live. Uh- yeah. But you know how that happens? How? Resting, boundaries, mm. self-care. Yes. Saying no. Yes. <laughs> you know, like you look at them and it's like, we, we need to do the reverse. 
we, we have to go, okay, these are these people. They are still alive today. They're older. Look at the way they're taking care of themselves. Oh, looks look so at, good. You know, look at, I mean, Patty LaBelle going to tell you if you try her, you mm-hmm. know, and so much of our culture, especially as, you know, professional independent contractors. Yeah. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Yes. Listen, listen, everyone. It's a 1099 life. Don't get it twisted, our dear lovers. I mean. Literally, oh. as professional independent contractors, so yeah. much of our, our assumptions of what our job is, is mm-hmm. playing nice. And it's like, to what extent? Am I am I having to play nice, you know, for a few weeks of making like a couple hundred bucks? You know, am I going to leave with less than I came in here with emotionally? Is it worth just the extra couple hundred dollars that now I'm going to have to spend on like extra therapy? You know, like when you look at them and it's like the joy that they had, had, have the hits that they've made, the fact that Gladys can still sing her stuff, you know, it's, it's all reflective of self-worth and self-knowledge and just an an acceptance of who you are, which obviously just is a journey, but it's like, I don't want to be 80 years old and look like I've been through 240 years of trauma. Good morning. I mean, you see it already. I mean, I can tell this, and I mean this not as a read, but you even see it. I, let me use that. I even see it. You know, I just hit 21 years in in, uh, last month in the city. So, you know, I've seen people now from, you know, meeting them at Yule or Edge Morgan to now. And it's interesting to even see how people's choices are already showing, yeah. even in, in just two decades. And I'm, I, that's not to be like, oh, someone looks better or worse, or it's even like anything about a particular weird fascist version of like aesthetic that people seem to think is something which is a myth, right? No, but it's interesting just to see their choices and how they've survived. I'm not even going to say aged. Mm-hmm. How they've survived the last 20 years. And 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 that goes in all 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 that it's goes all like, directions. Line all directions. That costs. That costs yes. out of you. Yes. Yeah. You know. Oh, that's so funny. You know. I feel like when you've met people and they're less than kind, that continues to show on your face and your person. Mm-hmm. That deception or that consistent bad energy permeates your skin. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you re- really believe that we're just spiritual beings uh, having a physical experience, then it makes sense that the vessel of that spirit is going to reflect who you are internally and eternally, dare I say. Oh, shit. We're just starting. It's already happening. Um, you know, one of my favorite shows is Supernatural. I've stopped watching a little bit because they on like C37.5. And it's too much, too long. But one of the plot points in the show is that the two brothers are supposed to be vessels for Satan and Michael, the archangel, or something like that. Oh, that's right. Yes, 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 yes. Now, when the devil comes to Earth, he gets inside of a... Beautiful person? 
No, he gets inside of a, someone who has just lost their their entire family in like a tragic robbery, right? Oh. But that person's vessel was not strong enough to hold the the complexity of Satan. So their vessel, like the skin was falling off and Oh. You know, the Satan while inside of this person was like, I can't stay here long because I can't be held and contained inside of this thing. And so this the Sam, who's the brother that is supposed to, you know, hold the vessel is just he's a rageful person. He's a person that's bitter, angry, like very violent. But it comes from a place of betrayal, which, you know, biblically. There is that level of the devil that people rarely talk about is that like it wasn't all hate and no, it was so much love, yes, and fascination and obsession and wanting to inhabit it, Mm -hmm. and that being seen as wrong and detrimental, and, and that's where that came from of like, why can't I have what you have? And so you have this person who is whose body can hold the complexities of all of that stuff. And it's like people, you know, I, my friends are so important to me. Um, I am not a keeper of opportunities. If mm-hmm. I see an opportunity and it doesn't fit me, first of all, I have to vet <laughs> if it's worth it why, how, you know, all of those things. But I pass that stuff on to other people. And my friends are important to me. And I believe in the power of energy reciprocity, this idea that when I put good out and I put good into you, it doesn't end there. You go and you put good somewhere else and it just passes and it catches on. It kind of goes back to like my neighbor you have to put in effort to have that much hate in your heart. How do you walk outside, leaves changing, pumpkin spice lattes are back at Starbucks, <laughs> and you're so mad? <laughs> you know, like, oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, we talked about that in the last episode. Hint, hint, my love. Yeah. Go back. This is a continued conversation. The hate is a lot of work, man. It's a lot of work. You know, the, the things that we've been, like, talking about, all week, just, you know, through text of what's going on in the world, you know, the, when I think about, I'm not even going to say religion, because I think religion is dangerous. When I think about spirituality, and more specifically, when I think about things such as Christianity, I think that, you know, one, a lot of people forget that nobody in the Bible was white. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, nobody mm-hmm. was white. I ain't saying that they were black, but these were people of color, varying yes. shades yes. of color, different ge- geographic places on the continent of Africa, and you know all of those that specific Middle East that area. But they were not white people, and I think you know that is something that needs to be like drilled home because I think that there are. I think there are things that we want as a human race, which is to say race doesn't matter. You know, gender doesn't matter. Sure. Like in a a, a utopian world. Yeah. Yeah. In a utopian world, I thrive for that, but I'm not a jellyfish. Yeah. You know, I, 
I am susceptible to treatment because of the way that I am, just the way that I look. And then when I speak, I am very much aware that I'm susceptible to other things, which is a lot of people's situation, you know, when they start divulging more nuanced idiosyncrasies of like who they are and how they love and where they live, you know, it, Mm -hmm. it astounds me how anyone could call themselves a leader of, of, you know, quote unquote men, a leader of men, a leader to Christ and decides who gets to have access to the love they claim they give people access to. Like if you have the cure to coronavirus, why are you selling it? <laughs> mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you give it? Just give it if you have it. Yes. I'm not going to fully transition to this, but as an example, one of the reasons I, what I was telling you offline uh, that struck me with, um, you know, Pat Robertson, well, you know, listen, it's a televangelist. It's a very specific demographic that he's going to, but I, okay, before I, I talk about this, I'm sure you heard about it, but the New York Times didn't even bother because they're like, Mm-mm. and AP News, everyone, which is kind of fact-driven, nonpartisan news reporting, couldn't give a fuck. So that's, take that with a grain of salt when I talk about this. So I'm just going to read you what he said in relation to BLM. He says, they're talking about Marxist communism. They're talking about destroying the nuclear family. They're talking about destroying essentially Christianity as being racist. And all the way through, they want to upend the capitalist structure and destroy America. He continues to go on to say, people should be aware they're not just standing with the poor, oppressed Black people. Of course, we want to stand with people against police brutality. Of course we do. But what we don't want to go along with is a lesbian, anti-family, anti-capitalist, Marxist revolution. We don't want that for America. Uh, to which, I'm to sorry. which, no, of course it is. It's literally laughable, which is probably why AP News and the New York Times were like, bitch, like you, you go ahead and talk your little shit and let the Daily News cover that. You know what I mean? We can go to the News Weekly can be part of that situation. But the irony with that is what he's not realizing in terms of using the... Christian word, which has become kind of a four-letter word, frankly, you know, it has become like a pejorative in a lot of ways in the current climate, is I'm like, no, dude, this isn't, no, you're racist. (laughs) It's it's not about an entire group of people who choose to believe in, in the source of love that they have faith in. It's your people who are weaponizing a faith system. Yeah. Let's go let's go beyond religion. They're weaponizing a faith-driven system. And then for you to use all these other crazy words, trigger words that you know like hit people like a ton of bricks, like one of the trigger things is you know communism is ridiculous. And to assume that the people who are part of BLM both quite literally as an organization and as supporters of the movement that there aren't people who have a faith in the same faith you claim to be preaching is ridiculous because this this dude's basically gatekeeping a philosophy that has nothing to do with faith, really. You know? And I just found that to be fascinating that led to another conversation about, is it about the choice of words that people make? And my thought that kept coming up and up 
over and over again with that is passivity of, of language right now is not the gig. Yeah. You know, we've been passive with language because then what happens is these people who have a following come in, use trigger words, and then the people who are only reading the clickbait, that's all they see are those trigger words. Mm -hmm. So now everyone's finally saying the words like white supremacy, right? Which is super triggering to people. But everyone has tried to play nice and it has now been proven that that doesn't work. I don't know what the fuck works, but I certainly don't think being passive with language is the gig either. Yeah, it's, I feel like this country just has, you know, selective amnesia, you know, even if this pat wants to talk about a quote-unquote nuclear family. Yes. Let's talk about the families that were destroyed because of smallpox Hello. and genocide and the slave trade. You don't get to just erase the history of this country in attempts to uphold these systems that allow these white people to get away with literally with murder mm -hmm. literally how to get away with murder is be white in america it's it's disgusting and i mean at this point i don't really have any words for it beyond like those people are just gonna have to die off you know what but, I mean? Yeah, and it's a hot mess. No, I agree. It's like they're they're what it, what is the answer? It's deep seated. Everything. Yes. You know, everyone wants to blame Donald Trump for these people being the way that they are. They've always felt this way. Yes. And I think we need to dial back and look at who around us was speaking in this coded language before 2000 and what, 16, 17, whatever it was when he was nominated. Because those people are still there. Some of them are deciding to just fully become cockroaches and the rest of them are, you know, saying the coded words, EDI and, you know, um, trainings, diversity. You know, like we have also now given the language for people to... You know, watching, um, I just started watching all like Sigourney Weaver, Alien, the aliens. Oh, shit, yeah. So like watching that, a long time. Like, we've equipped some, <laughs> some androids to be humans. We've given them the language to trick us into staying in their positions and saying the words that prove that I'm listening, I'm here, I'm with you, I'm listening, I'm here, I'm with you. But where is the... The change, the dismantling, and then the the building up of actual tangible change, and I, and it makes me frustrated that we've had to get to this point, especially as an industry where so many people don't have jobs, for people to realize how few people have livable wages in our industry. Why does it take for everyone to experience the loss of something? to validate the importance of a tackling an issue. It shouldn't take something to hit our front steps. It shouldn't take this old, like, 975-year-old man <laughs> to say what he's saying and to, you know, rile up these Trump supporters for, first off, the, the 
the responsibility in this moment are Christians and not just the regular Christians, you know, that mm. practice, practice, I practice individually. You know, it is my personal experience. It is not something I project onto other people, which is why I am most interested in people's adjectives describing me versus the things I force into their brains concerning me. Okay. How do you describe me as a person? How do I treat you? How do you observe me treating other people? You know, that's what's important to me because that to me is Christianity. It's how you treat people when it's just you and them and when there's no camera and when someone's hungry and you have extra, you should give it because it always comes back. It's in action. It's not in talking about it. It's in actually doing it. That's how you show love to people. And I think that's what's been bothering me is that there's so much. You can't do this. and You can't do this. And you can't do this. Why wouldn't I go lay in the arms of a woman if that's who loves me the way that I am? How dare you tell me I can't find love in that way? Mm. But I've come to you, and the only reason you've turned me away is because I said that. Mm. I've never not fed anyone. You know what I mean? Like, when you think of it that way, it's, it's so <laughs> ironic that I feel like we find the attributes of Christianity in a lot of people that aren't Christian. Yes. That's what's, what's baffling to me, is that we should be rat racing each other to fill needs. It should be a rat race. No, I'll do it. No, I'll do it. And instead, it's become people are trying to make America a heaven that they get to gatekeep the experience to. Yes. Jesus Christ. No pun intended. I'll cut the Jesus Christ. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yes. Maybe not. Maybe not. And oh, my God, that's so well articulated. I don't even know how to add to that. And I completely agree that. The most spiritual, godly people I know, half of those motherfuckers are agnostic. Yeah. You know what they have? They are of service to people around them. They have a sense of charity. They have a sense of empathy. They have a sense of love. And they have a sense of selflessness. Yet, if you were to ask them, they're like, no, I don't, I don't subscribe to any of that. Which, eventually, I think way, way beyond any of our lifetimes, eventually I think whatever people tap into will be something closer to that because we've seen now through thousands of years, right? Of war and everything, that what we think we're chasing, we're too human to accept it. Mm. We're too... We're too human, you know, like as, as artists, you know, we're, we've literally devoted our life to the fascination of the human condition because it is so multifaceted and endlessly interesting, right? But the one thing that we've clearly not been able to understand and be able to absorb is love. We all want it. We all need it. We all crave it. But it's very hard for us to accept because we are inherently imperfect. You know, there's that whole notion. And to be clear, guys, I'm not, I don't subscribe to any one particular religion, even though I was raised a certain way. But I have a lot of feelings about all this, obviously. And that's also, to be clear, coming from a place because I could not exactly, going to what Morgan said, subscribe to anything directly that said, you can't do this, this, or this, or that that person next to me is less godly because they're not this. 
Which isn't to, by the way, that's what all faith systems do for the most part. And that might be a blanket statement, but there's a lot of that in in, in in man-made religion. Let's say that. There's a lot of that bullshit, right? A lot of it. Which, you know, was created to, as we all know, I'm sure we've all taken a class, to create a system of organization and a modicum of repression for generally royalty. (laughs) Generally. You know what I mean? There's a reason why it's called the King James Bible. Like, don't get it twisted. He was like, actually, I don't really like the way that sounds. Make it do this. You know, it's like, what, what did, what did, uh, what did the, what's that quote? People don't want God. They want to enslave God to their whim. You know, I wonder sometimes too, if like for anyone that was raised in this faith system, uh, you know, there's that whole notion of like original sin, right? Mm-hmm. Which is sort of fascinating and kind of like makes no sense. But then when I think about it, like in a more esoteric way, which is how I tend to spend my days once I like get past my anxiety and get things done. Um, <laughs> Um, which I had a great conversation with my therapist about. I sometimes wonder if that original sin is the inherent thing that makes us human, which is our inability to accept love once we graduate to a certain level of human development. Because when we're babies, we're just little like, you know, squishy pumpkins of like accepting love. You know what I mean? All we want, we want it, we react to it. There's no judgments, you know, and then everything gets real Rogers and Hammerstein and you have to be carefully taught. Do you know what I mean? How to like start to hate things and like things and, oh, how does mom act? How does dad act? Or maybe not even that. How does my aunt act or my grandma act or my uncle or whoever's raising me, right? My brother, my sister, so many versions of to the audacity of what this motherfucker said, a nuclear family. A nuclear family is some weird postcard that you're getting from Home Goods from 1963 in that guy's mind, when a nuclear family can be so many fucking things. So many different people. So many different people, so many ways of circles of love that bring someone up into the world. It isn't always a mom and dad. It is oftentimes not a mom and dad, actually. So I wonder if that is, in a sense, the theoretical idea of an original sin before it got mired down in human like darkness, was that we inherently, once we s- tragically start to develop and get a sense of our own consciousness, love all of a sudden turns into, as a human being, very, very young. Hence why candy is like magic to kids, because someone's like, if you do that, I'll give you a piece of candy. And you're like, love! <laughs> love becomes something that is awarded or taken away from you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we spend our whole lives trying to find this weird balance of where we're getting just enough of it to stay alive. And then some of us, I don't even know if I'm included in this, can open up a little bit more and realize that it's the most important thing so that we try to tap into it on a more daily basis to make life more bearable. That's my wax poetic on that shit. I mean, it makes sense to me. I I told my mom, I'm like, it's it's interesting when you watch the way we applaud people for living their truth. Yeah. When it should actually be the norm that people mm-hmm. live truths, whatever that may be. And I think in an attempt to keep this little heart of mine of of flesh. Um <laughs> I think a lot of times when you look at people that are so upset by people living their truths, there is a a, a tiny place inside of them that operates from jealousy. 
Yes. Because they're observing someone have the audacity to have joy. <laughs> they're watching someone have the audacity to take up space. And when you are have lived your life within the confines of what should make you happy and what shouldn't make you happy, you become confused when you watch people get happiness from those things that you've been told you can't possibly have joy in that. Um, that's why I also subscribe to the idea of mind your business. Because, <laughs> you know, it's also good for the skin when you mind your business. But it's also, you know, I, I, I really do think that there there is some sense of how dare you? You know, yeah. also like, hmm. I, I think there's, that's why, you know, watching so many young people, you know, break out of just definition and just explore, obviously healthily explore life and, you know, failure and expression and just identity so many, and gender and so many things that are, yeah. that are thrust upon us. And sometimes the thrust is correct. You know, sometimes you're like, yeah, that is me. But I've decided that for myself upon my own exploration and research. And that's why I said, you know, being the bishop of your own boundaries is so important because we're in a present time where everything around us wants to take our, our rest, our art, our joy, our relationships, our ability to communicate. You know, I found myself not being as good of, of a communicator as I would like to be in this present time. And that's mostly because I think there have been moments where I've overextended myself. Mm -hmm. if, if I'm saying I only have 100 points of energy to give a mm -hmm. day, if I'm doing something that takes 100 points of my energy, that means I have no other points of energy to give throughout the rest of the day, which means I'm overexerting myself. And I'm doing that thing I said I need to stop. I need to stop doing. So when you watch people completely just disregard the norms of society, which is saying, no, I'm not going to go into work today because I don't feel like it's safe. Well, that's not normal. You know, people need money. People need to work. Well, I said I wasn't going to go to work because it's not safe. And I told you if it wasn't safe, I wasn't coming. I understand you're short staff. And yes, I need money, but you didn't plan. Mm. So now that's your emergency. You know, yeah. now, you know, just just watching people do things like that. There are so many people that let those types of moments slip by them. And now they have become the people that they could not stand who became the gatekeepers over them. It's like a cycle of people being like, I've been hurt, I've been traumatized, I've been confined, I've been told what to do, and now I'm old, and how dare you think you'll live a freer life than I've lived, you know? You actually, what really became clear in my mind as you said that cycle, I, I really think that that's what the cycle is of the people that are, quote, end quote, in charge, right? Mm -hmm. is I've said this a couple times. I think that they're in that cycle and they finally got to being the people running the race, right? And because they understand that mortality is a real thing, they 
don't want anyone to be happy. They want to get the final say, quite literally let everything burn to the ground like it is. Hello, good morning, class. It's a fucking disaster. And because I think in their heart, they know the energy they've put out in this world, no matter what you believe in to the next phase of whatever it is that existence is, after you leave this body, I think they know that it's not going to be good. So why not just burn it down before they go? Do you know what I'm saying? And like earn whatever that dark march is that they're heading towards, to quote Tennessee Williams for two seconds. And that's a super dark thought to have, but it's one of the things I think about often in terms of that vicious cycle of what you're saying. And um, the audacity of joy, which is difficult speaking to, according to the demographics that we read uh, for my show, is 24 to 34 which is difficult. <laughs> Hello. Uh, which is difficult because we are so tied in now to getting highly curated imagery from people's lives, right? Mm-hmm. So a certain degree of the audacity of joy is the MO of social media, right? For well, some people. I think- you, on, on a certain level, you know? I think for some people it is, but joy by, you know, the the non tangible definition is something that you cannot subscribe to just having wealth and it's not something that you can see that's why i said like rest is important community is important because in those types of relationships and those energies joy can exist outside of what is naturally happening in your life that's why yes. seeing people that are rested you know in the middle of a racial movement you know, that's unspeakable joy because everything around us says that we should all be crumbling. But in this moment, some people have found a, a, an ironic strength, yes. you know, yes. to rather than crumble in this moment to really dig their roots even deeper in, in, the, in the hopes. You know what I'm saying? Like even just going back to the, it's, it's just that. It's watching that joy that they had in that space where it was only Gladys and Patty, yeah. 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 It was into a, that was the world in that moment. Yes. And that's what we have to strive for, where it's the way that we uplift each other allows us to exist in a tumultuous world with joy in between each other. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And in many ways, I feel like the one thing that has come out of this time where we're not allowed to be physically together the way we'd like to be, in an interesting way, and I say this without irony, having this conversation with you, it's kind of connected people in a in a different way. Because it's creating this, an accessibility where, you know, especially as New Yorkers, you know how we are, we're like, oh shit, well, you know, somewhere there, maybe meet you over there. And I don't, I, where, where are you going? In Lower East Side? I don't know if I want to go. You know, there was always, a, there's a little bit of the navigation of the truth of the fact that, you know, as New Yorkers, the one thing I always say that makes New Yorkers amazing is that we don't hide inside of a metal coffin. We go out and we we literally march in the direction of our goals and our dreams every fucking day. It's my favorite thing about New York City, which is why 
we were the city to pull our shit together during this crisis because we're like, bitch, I don't have, a, there's no shield around me. I can't roll up the windows, motherfucker. It is me. So you know what I'm yeah. going to do? I'm going to roll this window up over my fucking mouth if that's going to keep me alive. And I don't want to kill your grandma. Like that's, that's <laughs> right. where I was coming. You know, that's where I was coming from. I was like, I don't want to be the thing that makes someone in your family who's susceptible sick. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to add to that. You know what I mean? I'll figure it the fuck out. But what I won't do is show the fuck up and and threaten your family's life because of my irresponsibility. And apparently millions of us in New York City felt the fucking same way. Mm -hmm. There is that sense of community here that people don't understand. And they say we're angry and we're this and we're that. But when the shit hits the fan, we all pull together because we're all in this shit together. We're all broke. We all have money. We all strive. We all fall together. And then we we make things happen. It's the strength of, of NYC with that NYC tough shit, I'll even say, that is really true. It is a truth. And coming full circle after that little rant about that is that's exactly what it was, was Gladys and and Patty. <laughs> I say that as if like we're cousins. Um, uh, we know what I mean. We know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, listen, they're icons. You can do that. It I couldn't figure out why I was I got genuinely emotional and you nailed it on the head. It was watching Two people have the audacity of joy despite everything. And that is a revolutionary act. And it is, I've said this over and over again, joy is a form of protest. It is. It, yeah. Because it's contagious. For that couple hours, escaped. And beyond escaped, everything was fine. Yeah. And then I went into the rest of my night in a good mood. And then anyone I connected with that night, we were all just sending each other proverbial little hearts. That shit spreads, you know, as much as we've seen the, the other side of it spread. And I think that that's something as the imaginative people that we are in the arts, it'll be interesting to see how we allow ourselves to, and we'll talk about this in the next half of the show, something we talked about offline is to understand that we're still healing and that we need to allow ourselves to heal in order to make actionable change moving forward. Because when you're in pain, it's hard to, to make. Mm -hmm. it, becomes, it becomes individualistic. Yes. It becomes about what I need to feel better about this thing versus how do I keep anyone else from experiencing what I've experienced. And I think that we have to just community thinking and moving forward. For me, healing for me has, yes, been about myself in a lot of moments, but of also been about the ways in which I help others. When you help others, one is it's an impulse, but there's something amazing about looking into the eyes of someone else that you've done something for. Mm -hmm. Their mm -hmm. gratitude, especially when you've been hurting, you know, yeah. like I said, I, you know, we, we can all talk about the moments in which we've, you know, felt portrayed by someone who was in a, in a place of authority, you know, not beyond anything, you know, physical or that, you know, I'm talking about just, just looking up to someone and, and realizing the way that they are aware of the power that they have to, give you opportunities and also withhold opportunities and to build you up and to tear you down. And 
you know, as you get older, you realize that that's not something that you earn. That's something that is an honor, is a privilege to be the place where artists and people come to dream and figure out how to manifest and mold and make those dreams multidimensional. And it hurts. You know, when you leave something in a place and you found yourself only with pieces of yourself, that Mm. is draining. And I remember one time in college, uh, someone I was dating, we broke up and it was devastating for me because this is someone like I had been with. And, you know, we're older now. I haven't spoken to him in a while, but, you know. Something interesting happens when the tables turn, when you are a giver. And it's now time to receive and people aren't there. Yes. And it's, we need more givers in the world, especially givers to give to givers, you know, but I just remember walking into my speech coach's room, like right before nationals, having been, you know, sad and depressed and feeling super alienated, like an undergrad, none of my professors really took me under their wing to help pursue my career. Like I remember auditioning for a whole bunch of grad schools. It might've been a Unifies or something. I don't remember. And I have wrote all of my callbacks in the rooms that they were in on a sheet of paper. And my sheet of paper was flying, flew out of my hand and in the street. I'm in Chicago. And when oh, I tell shit. you, I ran through that street like a Virginia Wallace and Annie. <laughs> I ran through that street for that sheet of paper. And I remember going into the then chair, uh, the person that was over the team. And I looked at him after having experienced all of those setbacks. And I looked at him and said, I think I'm going to do very, very well next week. I I have so much emotionally to give that in this moment, you know, I'm not ready to deal with the things I've dealt with, but there are characters and stories that I'm telling that deserve to have the full openness and vulnerability in their complex ways, but they deserve to have my accessibility to those things. And I'm going to bring that person into the room with me to make way for those people and whatever those stories are that I was, you know, telling at the time. And it's, it's, it's a dangerous slope when you're a giving person and you find yourself not in community. That's why I think community is so important for people that are givers. Like I have so many amazing friends who I think are also givers, but the community in the, in this pandemic for me has shown me the, Oh Lord, the opportunistic nature of people when they know that they could come to you, get that little healing drop, Phoenix teardrop that'll wash all their pains away. They'll come to you and feel like there's hope, there's a better world. So when I look at Patty's and Gladys, I and Patty's and the Gladys's of the world, I'm like, they are amazing. And I hope that Patty and Gladys have their own Patty and Gladys's. Yeah. They don't just exist as a place for people to get joy. There's enough joy for me to give you some and for you to give someone else some. And for me to know that when I turn around, someone is standing there with a cup of joy for me. 
you yeah. know, that there is actually enough to go around if we just keep passing it along. But the, the, when the shortage is when someone goes, well, thank you. And that's where they stop. Yes. The, the reciprocity. Yeah. Reciprocity. That, well, that's a great place to, to take a little recalibration, as we like to say. So if it's your first time listening, this is our recalibration, little meditation moment we're going to have. My suggestion to you right now, everyone, is to put on your headphones, put them on, press pause, and then get somewhere comfortable. And let's recalibrate just for a quick minute-ish, okay? So we will be right back. Hi, this is Aaron, your host and producer of the show. So there's a lot happening right now in the world. And rather than take a moment to have a commercial, I thought it would be nice for us to take a moment and recalibrate. How does that sound? Excellent. Okay, so get comfortable, and we're going to take a deep breath in, and a deep breath out. Deep breath in, and just let it out. All right. Now close your eyes, and breathe. Normally. feel a little better now. And just remember, you are perfect. And you are loved. Okay. Let's get back to the show.
And we're back. We hope you're feeling a little better, a little more relaxed, a little more present. Okay, we're going to continue the conversation about being present here and talking about, dare we say, work, the creation of work, the creation of theater. I just had a random thought. Did you notice that uh, Frozen just reannounced that they officially closed? And I was like, wait, wasn't that? Wait, what happened? I just saw like a headline where they're, where they're like, Frozen officially closes. And I'm like, weren't you always closed? Anyway, why are we talking about that? It's I'm so sorry for all those people who are involved. What a fucking tragedy. Speaking of work, we were talking <laughs> sort of about the creation of work from various people of color. What was the word you used? Like we used Jordan Peele as an example. Yeah. That ability to to create something that's abstract that leaves people having conversations where they've come to various conclusions and various experiences that his, you know, second piece did more so than his first piece did. It was very direct and very, you know. Yes. And so that's what kind of got my brain thinking a lot about in terms of artistry about abstraction. And the agency to allow oneself as a creator to be able to create work that doesn't always have to be tied into a pretty bow, that not everything has to have the goal of being the definitive statement on anything. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of art is abstraction, you know, like Rothko, right, everyone? If, If you're not familiar with Rothko's work, just look it up. And I'm sure when you've actually, let's be really real. Let's just, let's be real. So when you look at it initially on a Google Earth image, not a Google Earth, but a Google image, you're like, okay, that's a bunch of colors and, okay, fine. Then you see it in real life and you're like, oh shit, it's a lot more intense and something happens. So we see this a lot in fine art, right? Let's cut to a a famous American graffiti artist, the most famous as far as I'm concerned, Basquiat, right? So initially... You know, they were like, oh, it's really the voice of the streets. You know how the people framed it in the, oh, this is the voice of the gutter. And it's like, oh, Christ's sake. And it was all of this imagery that obviously was very symbolic and there were themes, but it was the sum total of the parts of the abstraction that really had the profound effect on everyone and still does to this day. And I think that as creators, there's something that I've been really concerned with that hit close to home where. Something is, has something has changed within me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Where I, I all of a sudden was not particularly concerned with a traditional narrative where theme-based ideas and concepts really made more sense to me. Yes, do I like a beginning, middle, and end? Does everything have to have a protagonist, an antagonist, an inciting incident? All those tropes, right? We all know, you know, Morgan's a writer. We know that these are the things that you just have to have happen. But it's interesting to work in a place where you're just allowed to sort of meditate on a theme, which, going back to Jordan's movie, I say it again as if we go to brunch together, That really, that movie was kind of a meditation on themes. Yeah. There was no, there was no pretty 
wrapped, beautifully bowed package at the end. Nothing was handed to you as like, here's the end result. It was a meditation on themes and something that sparked conversation for Morgan and I about that was our hope that creators of of color can hopefully be allowed the space to create work that's meditations on themes. Not everything has to be, what did you say, like the profound statement? Or actually, let's not even use the word profound. Not everything has to be like, this is the definitive thesis on this idea. Sometimes you just meditate on a theme. I mean, fuck. Isn't that Edward Albee? It was a lot of those white people. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's so many of them. I mean, it's like how I feel about like Midsommar and Hereditary. It's oh like, my God. You know what I mean? Like you're watching yeah, it. And you're it's like, just, what? It's theme on 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 allegory, allegory, allegory. Yeah. On like so many underlying not directly ever spoken about yes. plot points. So it makes you, you send people to watch it because you want to know what they think and if they got what you got out of it, right? Right. But when the work is so, these are Black people living in racism. It's like, okay, that's me. Yeah. You know, why am I going to go watch this? That's me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. this is a story about a young Latin boy raised by a single mom. Okay. Yeah, but like even like Get Out, like the amazing thing about Get Out was like, yes, it was about racism. Yes. Right? But it was in this phantasmic, yes. magic, like that racism exists in this evil magic plane. Yes. That makes you go, is somebody over in West Virginia doing this like for real, for real? You know yes. what I mean? That like, is that what's going on? Like, I got that from Lovecraft Country. Where yeah. it goes, you know what? They must be taking potions. Somebody's taking potions and putting yeah. it. Because how is it this insidious? You know, it makes you think. And it also, in this very odd way, comforts you as an oppressed person. Mm. Because it makes you really understand the efforts that go into upholding what is insidious. Yes. Yes. Which plays... I just passed that myself. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. No, and yeah, yeah, yes, 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 yes. Which is the theme of the work, uh, which I'm going to be announcing officially very soon, everyone. So we're creating an online experience that's interactive because that's where we're at right now. That is an allegorical, is that a word? Allegorical? Which is an allegory about racial assimilation and supremacy, white supremacy, at least in the way we think of it oppressively. It's being explored in abstract themes within the guise of something fantastical, like you said, where it feels kind of more like a George Orwell thriller which was sort of a prophecy, right? Mm. And the thing that I also think is made available when you explore work from that point of view is you're truly, truly then allowing people outside of the demographic that they're seeing be able to relate. And then what I think is a possibility, if it's successful, is that it makes someone identify as mm. opposed to 
a straightforward piece about a Latin family growing up poor. If you are a non-Latin person who grew up with wealth, you're going to be like, I don't identify, but I sympathize. And that was a good movie. But if you go into something that's sort of fantastical and it makes a switch, right? And these themes are there, but they're not so damn on the nose because that's no fun. We're not using our imagination, right? All of a sudden, you start to identify with the utopian idea of look at this group of humans Mm -hmm. going through this extraordinary circumstance, which is what I think Lovecraft is kind of doing because it's so extraordinary in sci-fi that people are looking beyond. And it's just this group of people going through an extraordinary set of circumstances. But then you remember the whole premise behind it is about race. But your mind, because you've been allowed to bathe in imagination, has allowed you to identify beyond beyond that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because it's like there's multiple things going on. There's one, the entry points for those that relate to the people in the piece that are experiencing the oppression. Yes. Like I feel okay when I watch something like get out because to me the coagula seems like some far off you know yes there's this hint of like you know somebody probably tried this but also it's like okay that clearly isn't real so there is some fear recognizable fear like when they experienced the police or when he was you know surrounded by all those white people at the auction there's that familiar fear but then there's also that magical you know Lens fear that also happens. And it also provides an entry point for the people that are doing the oppressing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I've seen many a white person that is like, I am enjoying Lovecraft. Why? Because the racism, either the person is okay with acknowledging, you know, privilege and race and all those things that are happening in the world, but also it allows. People to yeah, there's a little bit space there where you're like, well, clearly, you know, well, I ain't gonna give any spoilers. Yeah, but you know, it's been interesting talking to different different black people about what is scary to them in Lovecraft because, like, for me, I've only been scared of the like the actual monsters, if that makes sense. And then you have people that are like not these. I won't say desensitized because we experience it, but don't feel as much fear from the actual tangible dangers that we can actually experience, you know, in our, in our actual lives. So it's interesting to gauge that distance between what is actually terrifying because it's scary because it's a lot of different themes and horror and thriller and all of that, but also what could possibly happen to me in my real life watching this moment, you know, like in the get out moment, like in our culture, we assume that if the cops show up, a white woman's in danger, bloody and all this stuff, like he's going to die, not go to Mm. jail. He going to die. You Mm. know what I mean? Mm. So I did not expect a black body who is also his friend to get out of the car, you know? So, having those types of experiences and being in a theater and everyone gasped Mm. when the cop lights came on, it was like, oh, so we all on the same page. Like, Mm -hmm. we all are experiencing the same America. 
You know what I mean? It wasn't just black people. Everybody was like, yes. Oh my God. Like this, he was so close to escaping. And then watching that unfold and everyone cheered because they knew immediately that he was safe. In that moment, everyone of all races, like you said, was completely identifying with the moment, the Mm -hmm. truth of the moment because of the heightened circumstances. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it wasn't, frankly, lazy in the storytelling, it was fantastical, it was nuanced, there was allegory, there were metaphors, and theme on theme on theme. So then you get a whole movie theater of all kinds of folks completely identifying in totality, which is really an incredible way to, I think, think about the work I, I hope we all start creating moving forward is identification is what's lacking <laughs> Yeah, right now. People just identifying that like, we're all in the same sphere right now in terms of these 50 states. There's a way we can all actually identify with, with characters well, that don't look well, like us. Well, in that film, there were different moments that I would beg where people realized that he was actually in danger. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I like, have to rewatch this now today. Like you're literally. Yeah. Well, it's, it was, it's, and I'm just unpacking this now that, you know, when he got to the house and the dad was like talking about how his dad was running fast and he was, you know, an athlete, but he lost to Jesse Owens. And then he goes, he almost got over it. You know, I was like, mm, what he mean? You know, like there, there were things that like, when you live in a coded world where people are always sliding little slide, you know, comments in, you're all always paying attention to stuff like that. So I'm like really interested, you know, in these types of films, you know, like in Lovecraft, when Letty got that really, really nice house, my impulse was like, okay, and who lived across the street though? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like where is the that if it's not your culture or your experience, are you ex- are you going through the journey of the character as in, you know, th- their disillusionment to the, the danger and now you're an onlooker afraid of when they're going to find out they're in danger versus, you know, when did everybody realize that, what's his name? I don't even know his name in Get Out. When did everybody realize like he was in danger? So, you know, some people were waiting for that moment. Some, there was just so many little, little stamps in the film where it was very nuanced, you know, and then you became an onlooker. You weren't experiencing it as him anymore. You were experiencing it almost as a guardian, you know, being like, mm. he needs to leave versus, mm. you know, not knowing what's going on. The minute you catch on that there's something like obviously insidious happening here, you are no longer the, the character until they have caught up. Yes. And, and that's interesting that like just the, the different journeys we all take with the piece where, where we are along the, the journey of discovery along with the, the, the main character versus we know where this is headed. When are they going to find out where this is headed? I don't know why this brought this to my forefront of my thoughts, but it made me think about going way back. God, I was, I was young. So you might have been a little squish, actually, Morgan. <laughs> To the first Matrix. Were you little, little first Matrix? I was like, I think I was like five. Don't even say it. Okay, fine. I was a grown ass man in a car with friends getting ready to move to New York. All right, we're going to move past this moment. So my 
cognizant, legal adult ass. I remember, you know, obviously there was some, but you've seen it since, obviously, right? The Matrix. I don't know. Is that bad? No, it's not bad. I actually, you know, actually, this is actually good. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. Everyone that's listening, if you have not, I'm not even shaming you because there is like a, it's an interesting place to be in a, in a gap of, of ages. Whereas like I'm 41 and Morgan is not yet. There's that thing where there's a movie that kind of came around that really uh, got into the culture that people haven't seen. I would watch it because it's referenced a lot. I'm sure you'll hear a lot of people saying, oh, there's a glitch in the matrix. There's a, this." we reference it a lot, but there was an interesting thing happening in that movie. Lawrence, Fishburn and all of his resonant, brilliant ass glory, right? Was the motherfucker who had the knowledge of entering into the matrix, right? Now, in retrospect, there goes a fantastical thing where for not even two seconds did it mean anything that, yes, you had cutie, patootie, Keanu Reeves, like what's not to like, right? Like what's not to like, right? Just bless his heart. Just harmless. Sweet, harmless Keanu Reeves. And then Lawrence Fishburne acting as the person who had all the knowledge and the training. Now, there was something where race in that moment was irrelevant. And it was a fantastical way of showing that by looking through the gaze of all of this being pretend, that there was a side where people were just people. And then the woman who played the Oracle was also a woman of color. And it was interesting that they created all these characters of profound weight to the narrative that were people of color, but there was never a question. What they were tapped into was deeper than this mythological lie that we tell ourselves is our everyday life. It was an allegory that really fucking weighed in on everyone. And the casting of it, which let's be real, like what, over 20 fucking some odd, 25 years ago, probably. Without them being like, oh, let's do diverse casting. They're like, no, motherfucker. This is about breaking outside the confines of what you think everyday life is supposed to be, what we think it is in America, essentially. So race is irrelevant. It's about who has the knowledge. Who is the keeper of the knowledge and the truth? And that, in a way, is a quasi-utopian way of looking at things as an artist. Where we all think to ourselves, I, I hopefully there'll come a day when we all are realizing we're human. But I, I don't know what, what the point of any of that was. Everyone listening who's probably like being like, is this motherfucker ever, does he really edit this show? Um, <laughs> I do. I really do. Is that I, I'm excited about the next phase of storytelling where we do these things that are, we're already seeing, where we really open up the nuance of these stories and the fantastical nature of it to allow people to identify and not be so damn on the nose. Yeah. You know, because to me, being on the nose is kind of lazy. Yeah. (laughs) You know this as a writer. It's like you can, you know, there's a really funny line from one of uh, this funny indie movie with Parker Posey called House of Yes. And she goes, oh, if everyone's going to start telling the truth, I'm going to sleep. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. sometimes in storytelling, yes, we're telling the truth. But like you've also got to be able to sometimes reach a bigger audience to identify. And I think that that's going to be the challenge of artists of color 
is one, to tell the stories authentically. And sure, we can tell some really on the nose stories. Why not? Everyone else does, right? But to see if we can really rip into these imaginations of ours that are so coded with what we've been told is the the thing that is the ultimate perception of like success and beauty. But then there's our own lived experiences and imagination that it'll be really interesting to tap into that to tell the next generations of stories. Yeah. That are infinitely more fantastical on a certain level because everyone else is already borrowing from them. And by them even borrowing, everything they do is better. Well. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say well to them. (laughs) I don't know. What are are your thoughts on that, Morgan? (laughs) I'm... mm. I mean, I mean, as as well, for example, I'll I'll just ask you this because we wanted to talk about it. As a writer, for you, and then we'll end it on this, has there been a way that you've been kind of approaching the way you like to shape a narrative as you start to create things with your words? I've kind of been in a very interesting place like now reflectively, where I have examined the world the way that it is, accepted it for how it is, and then given the a character the the courage to say, hmm, they must be hiding something from me. Hmm. And so who is this character? Why are they inquisitive? What type of upbringing would, in this world, nurture and create someone who has such self-worth or lack thereof and the purposefulness of them being so, you know, insecure what what has drawn them to this world that either a doesn't accept how amazing they are or mm. b insists that they are constantly in a, in a deficit mm. um, and that there must be something hiding in the in the cracks and crevices of the earth that they have to discover because th- there must be others like them too Oh shit. Um, that's kind of how I've been trying to look at the world and you know look at humanity as you know some of the strongest people that we know what brings strength oftentimes trials and perseverance of trials you know mm. it's so easy to be so sure of yourself when nothing has told you you shouldn't be sure of yourself Mm. And to take that person and reverse and explore them being completely free and the opposite of how we know them. Mm. For me, as a person that is a writer and a and a performer of others' words, mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think that there's oftentimes a nuance that is kept from people of color, especially non-ambiguous people of color. That in the piece that I've I've been writing about the Tulsa riot and the massacre, the Tulsa massacre, mm-hmm. I don't really focus too much on the on the massacre because I'm yeah. not interested in recreating some type of death trauma scene. I am actually most created in creating the world in which these people grieve having lost. Yes. And 
as someone that's creating two worlds, one, the world before this and making our lens into how trauma changes us, be someone who only knows prosperity and freedom and expression and, you know, turning them into someone who is not bitter or angry or defensive. I think that those are like dangerous adjectives to describe people that survive something as such. It agreed. Um, so, you know, as someone who is who has made that and consciously implemented ambiguous people into it, you know, there is a place for ambiguity in in art. Yes, there are places where it specifically calls for it. And yes. I have been unpacking like where to put it in, why to put it in, how to put it there, and to specifically call it forward. And to call forward its ability to be in proximity to whatever it decides to be in proximity to um, yes. for survival purposes, because it's all always about survival. Mm-hmm. But rather than calling the actors, you know, in an ideal world to the stage and say, hey, you were mm-hmm. a black person that lived in this utopia and you've lost everything show starts at 7.30, you should perform from that space. I'm saying, no, warm up your instrument and come to this utopia for an hour. Yes. I want you to live what you're going to grieve having lost in the second half. I don't want you to prepare and come into the space having reflectively spoken about loss and then go back to the utopia. No, let's start there. Let's live and breathe in space. And you will never have to pretend to have lost that. Yes. You get to actually live it. And I think that that is what is so dangerous about the, about that there, there is a, a, a very scary place where art can go with like emotional repression. Yeah. Where the beauty and the joy. Oh no. Emotional oppression. Sorry. Is what oppression. I meant. Yeah. yeah. Where the beauty and the joy and the security and the expression and the love is something that you must make believe. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. And I said, let's do more of that. And Mm -hmm. if there's going to be loss, you better have shown the the prosperity first. It better be there somewhere. People are too comfortable having people live in loss. There's too much loss around people of color every single day to also then in your art only be able to inhabit loss as well. Yes, because it wasn't always, even even if you're doing something that starts in a storyline after the point of tragedy, it wasn't always bad. Right. Exactly. I remember when I, the first thing I did with my company is we did Antigone and I spent more time talking about the fact that this family was totally fucking flush and cool for a long time, just living their best lives, being royal as fuck, eating hummus, going to the beach, hanging out with your fucking aunt and uncle, and everything was fucking fine. It wasn't always bad. Right. It's bad now, and that's the tragedy. We talked a lot about their life, like the joy that that family at one point must have had, which informed the piece to be have a more sincere depth of what, what you're truly grieving is the loss of joy. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like, Everything is terrible in the world. You know, it's just like so on the fucking nose, which isn't to say too, like I, I want to see stories that don't just 
start at loss. But loss is loss is cheap. You know, it's boring. It's easy to play. Loss oftentimes caters to audiences that only come to feel loss at the theater. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to go to the theater and feel pain. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the people that are bringing that forward oftentimes are people who professional independent contractors. You know, they don't <laughs> to experience pain or loss or uncertainty. And I think that, again, a lot of that shapes the way we view actual humans and humanity, the nuancedness that comes from, you know, creating a character who hasn't been affected by society yet. We don't even know what that looks like, you know, and a lot of times people will say, you know, that person's on the spectrum. You know, there are people that are on the spectrum and then there are people that just don't have a prescribed formula to the way you perceive them. And that's because we have ideals of how people should express and be themselves. Having a little black girl have a piano in the middle of her town that is never vandalized, that everyone knows is her piano and she comes and she makes up her own songs and she plays, is a testament to her safety and the encouragement of her expression. Yes. So to watch someone be that young and that small and also to see a white person and not see someone that's superior, but more so foreign. Mm. You know, they don't they don't know the way the world views them versus them. They just go, well, what is that? Yeah. Why, why you change your voice when you talk to me? You know, they, they have very objective, non-inferior approaches to speaking about the differences they see in people. And also, for me, there is this false narrative, this thing going around where people go like, I, we, we ain't our ancestors. And you know what I say? We owe our ancestors. Mm. You know, our ancestors were not passive. You know, there's nothing passive about choosing to drown Mm. rather than endure, you know, a lifetime of enslavement. There's nothing passive about that. So, you know, making characters who fought to their death to hold on to freedom or to at least make sure that everyone around them knows that they took a few other people out with them is important to me because we have those, we have the blood of those people pumping in our veins. Yes. One million percent. Yes. I I think about that all the time. I'm like, if my great, great grandparents, I'm like, I wonder if they'd be happy knowing I'm just like eating tacos in New York city right now. I (laughs) wonder if that would bring them joy. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I wonder if the simplicity of, of life was kind of all they wanted for the future generations. I don't know. I don't know. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's something I think about a lot, a lot about these days. And it's something that I'm actually exactly exploring in, in, in this new work in an allegory, allegorical sense. We'll find out if that's a real word. Um, is sort of the insidiousness of assimilation, but also, like you said, that it happens based on survival. And that you can't, you know, it's like to be mad at anyone over it too, it's a double-edged sword because like how how does one get mad at generations simply trying to make sure the next generation survives as well? It's not right, but it's it's complicated. I think it was based in in love because it was wanting to preserve. It was about preservation. Yo, 
what a gift to have you here, Morgan. I can't say it over and over again. Jesus Christ. I like you. It's, it's, yeah, it's, 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 this has been amazing. Guys, we have one more episode. It happens so fast. So we got this one in the next week, and then September goes quickly. It goes fast. It's really nuts. So please do, do, do us a favor. Subscribe to this. You can like and rate and review. But more importantly, everyone, please tell your friends about these conversations we're having because we're, we're really happy to be putting this out in the world and keeping the conversation going. So please tell your friends to, you know, enjoy this. Share those links and uh, let's let's keep these conversations going. They're really, really important. They're really important. And in the meantime, everyone, please be healthy, be actionable, and most importantly, be authentic. Much love. For fuck's sake podcast is brought to you by Alvarez Kiko Salazar Productions. Hosted and produced by Aaron Salazar. Original music by Manuel Valero and Giancarlo Bonfanti. Please like, rate, and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at 4FS underscore podcast. And on Twitter and Facebook at 4FS podcast. Thanks so much. Much love.